Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 25, Exodus chapter 25. Well, last week we ended by discussing the connection between those symbols of the tribes of Israel and how each of the twelve tribes had its own symbol and how the tribes were arranged into divisions and placed in a very precise pecking order surrounding the wilderness tabernacle. And we uh, compared this against these strange spiritual creatures that the Bible sometimes calls living beings. These these spiritual beings that surround God's heavenly throne. And we saw that the twelve tribes of Israel were directed by God to be organized into four divisions of three tribes each. Four times three is twelve. And one of the tribes of each division was designated to be the leader of that three-tribe division. Now further, the four divisions were to occupy certain areas outside of the tabernacle, and these areas were defined by points on the compass, east, west, north, and south, with east being the preeminent direction, the most important direction, because the holy tabernacle faced to the east. If you recall, the symbols of the four leader tribes were a lion, an ox, or a bull, an eagle, and a man. And when we examined Ezekiel and Revelation, lo and behold, we're told that these living beings who guarded Jehovah's heavenly throne and accompanied God wherever he went had four faces, a lion, an ox, or a bull, an eagle, and a man. Therefore, we see that the reason Israel was to encamp the way they did was was in conjunction with the wilderness tabernacle so that it followed after the eternal pattern of God's heavenly throne room. And this is a wonderful example of that reality of duality whereby every spiritual principle has a physical, earthly counterpart to it. Now, let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 25 and see the beginning instructions for the construction of the wilderness tabernacle, God's earthly dwelling place. Exodus chapter 25. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to take up a collection for me. Accept a contribution from anyone who wholeheartedly wants to give. The contribution you are to take from them is to consist of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and other stones to be set for the ritual best in the breastplate. They are to make me a sanctuary, so that I may live among them. You are to make it according to everything I show you. 
the design of the tabernacle, and the design of its furnishings. This is how you're to make it. They are to make an ark of acacia wood, three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. You're to overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it both inside and outside, and put a molding of gold around the top of it. Cast four gold rings for it, and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. You will use them to carry the ark. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They're not to be removed from it. Into the ark, you're to put the testimony, which I'm about to give you. You're to make a cover for the ark out of pure gold. It's to be three and three quarters feet long and two and a quarter feet high. You're to make two cherubim, cherubs of gold. Make them of hammered work for the two ends of the ark cover. Make one cherub, one cherub, for one end and one cherub for the other end. And make the cherubim of one piece with the ark cover at its two ends. The cherubim will have their wings spread out above so that their wings cover the ark, and their faces are toward each other and toward the ark cover. You are to put the ark cover on top of the ark. Inside the ark, you will put the testimony that I'm about to give you. There I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the ark cover, from between the two cherubs which are on the ark for the testimony, about all the orders I am giving you to the people of Israel. You are to make a table of acacia wood three feet long, 18 inches wide, and 18 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold. Put a molding of gold around the top of it. Make around it a rim a handbreadth wide, and put a molding of gold around the rim. Make four gold rings for it, and attach the rings to the four corners near its four legs. The rings to hold the poles used to carry the table are to be placed close to the rim. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and use them to carry the table. Make its dishes, pans, bowls, and pitchers of pure gold. On the table you are to place the bread of the presence in my presence always. You are to make a menorah of pure gold. It is to be made of hammered work. Its base, shaft, cups, ring of outer leaves and petals are to be of one piece with it. It is to have six branches extending from its sides, three branches of the menorah on one side of it, three on the other. On one branch there are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a ring of outer leaves and petals. Likewise, on the opposite branch, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a ring of outer leaves and petals, and similarly for all six branches extending from the menorah. On the central shaft of the menorah are to be four cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with its ring of outer leaves and petals. Where each pair of branches joins the central shaft is to be a ring of outer leaves of one piece with the pair of branches, thus for all six branches. The rings of outer leaves and their branches are to be of one piece with the shaft, thus the whole menorah is to be a single piece of hammered work 
made of pure gold. Make seven lamps for the menorah and mount them so as to give light to the space in front of it. Its tongs and its trays are to be of pure gold. The menorah and its utensils are to be made of 66 pounds of pure gold. See that you make them according to the design being shown to you on the mountain. Well, notice something interesting. Before the blueprint of the tabernacle is given, we're first given the construction details of several of the pieces of sacred furniture and sacrificial instruments. So the instructions regarding the building of the tabernacle begin, in essence, from the inside and work their way outward. Yehovah's instructions begin with the holiest item, the ark, then move to the next most holy, the menorah, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, and finally moves out of the sanctuary altogether into the area that I call the area of humanity, the courtyard area, where the sacrificial altar is located. Now we're going to examine all of this in, in detail. In verse 1, God tells Moses that he wants Moses to collect the materials needed for the tabernacle from the Israelite people, but only from those who are willing to give without being coerced. See, this is to be an offering, a contribution. Nothing is to be given for any other reason than that person wants to give it. Notice that there is no penalty, there's no threats, there's not even to be any peer pressure or guilt applied to the people of Israel to give. Right? There, there is no grand speech by Moses or Yehovah that has been left to us as a model to start this grand building fund, if you would. Okay? The need is stated, and then the giving is either from the people's hearts or it's not at all. However, the tabernacle is for the benefit of the entire community of Israel, so it's reasonably expected that all, all Israelites will contribute to one level or another, however it is that they can each afford it. Now, in Hebrew thinking, there is more than one kind of offering. Now, this particular kind of offering is called a terumah, T-E-R-U-M-A-H, terumah, which is sometimes translated as a heave offering. See, it has this sense of being a contribution. That is, the giver is contributing to a need or to a common cause. And this strange-sounding term, heave offering, is actually descriptive of the way the offering was to be presented to God. By ritual tradition, the terumah offering was literally raised above the shoulder by the priest and moved around in a motion like one is heaving, underhanded, a, a bag of grain. And this kind of offering, this terumah, was not a sacrifice per se, because sacrifices were not only required actions in order to oh, remediate some violation of the law or complete some type of celebration or covenant ritual, but most, though not all, sacrifices were even burned up. Sacrifices required the giving of an animal or grain or wine or money according to some legally prescribed amount and particular kind of sacrifice. The terumah, 
which is what's being discussed here, had an element of free will. Now, I could easily turn this into a lesson about our giving, our tithing. I think I'll resist that and just let your pastors, who are much better trained on such matters, to deal with that. Instead, I'll just say this. I think we need to remember that all attempts by church authorities to characterize our giving, our, our tithing, as a kind of a New Testament version of the Old Testament sacrificial system is simply misguided and it is not at all biblically supported. Sacrificing is sacrificing and an offering is an offering and they are of entirely different purpose and nature. And Yeshua has already satisfied every requirement of the Torah's sacrificial system once and for all. So our giving, our tithing, cannot ever be classified as a sacrifice. Rather, the God principle about our giving is set down for us right here in the first verse of Exodus 25. It is equivalent to the free will heave offering, the teramah. We either give for a common cause with a joyful heart, completely freely, out of gratitude for, for what Yehovah has done for us, and that because we recognize the need and our duty to contribute, or we shouldn't do it at all. But the type of giving the church does is not in the realm of sacrifice whatsoever. You know, it's really a privilege, a duty, and an act of the conscience to give. Now, We're going to move on now um, and talk a little bit about the furniture that's that's inside this this tabernacle. But before we do, please note that as we proceed, the, the con we'll notice that the construction materials used for the tabernacle are grouped into seven distinct categories: metals, dyed yarns, fabrics, timber, oil, spices, and various gemstones. Now, as Nahum Sarna, who is a wonderful Torah scholar, has noted, there is a very interesting feature about some of the fabrics that will be used, because at times, these fabrics consist of a mixture of wool and linen. Now, that may not meet, mean too much to you right now, but it will as we study Leviticus. The reason is that such a fabric mixture is usually prohibited. In Hebrew, that kind of mixture, particularly of something like wool and linen, two kinds of, two different kinds of material woven together to make a piece of cloth, this is called sha'atnes. S-H-A-A-T-N-E-Z. Sha'atnes. Clothing, for example, is generally not to be made of material made out of this kind of mixed fibers. Yet we'll find that the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary and the curtain at the entry into the tent sanctuary, even parts of the high priest's ritual clothing are all required to be made of this same mixture, this sha'atnes, that's otherwise forbidden. Now, what we learn from this is that certain things 
are reserved for the most holy. And of course, this is as designated and determined by God. And its use outside of that context is simply not allowed. Therefore, there is really nothing inherently unholy or impure about mixed fabrics. That is, the weaving together of linen and wool doesn't create some kind of magical interaction, some kind of alchemy, all right, such that the resulting fabric becomes something altogether different or even maybe perverse. Now, now this understanding is so key to correctly comprehending the principles behind everything from oh kosher versus impure foods to the designation of clean versus unclean animals. Because it's a mistake to think that any food or animal has some type of inborn systematic holiness while another food or animal has some type of inborn systematic impurity in it. Okay? Rather, in general, it has to do with God's sovereign determination and inscrutable decisions about what and how ritual and worship before him is to occur. It's really just about that simple. Before we start examining the tabernacle's furnishings, I want to highlight verse 9 of chapter 25. Take a look at it. You don't have to uh, turn turn there again, but just take a look at it. Okay, you are to make it according to everything I show you, the design of the tabernacle and the design of the furnishings. See, this sentence, this was Jehovah talking to Moses during Moses' 40 days on the top of Mount Sinai. Now Moses, at this point in Exodus chapter 25, has not yet come back down to the people. M many versions will speak this verse as, Make it according to the pattern I show you, and that is certainly accurate and probably almost a better translation. But the question is, of course, exactly what pattern is it that God is showing to Moses? I mean, has Jehovah ruled out a blueprint on a papyrus scroll and is showing Moses the finer details of this earthly tent that Israel is supposed to build for the Lord? No, God is giving Moses the tour of his heavenly dwelling place. Now remember, tabernacle in Hebrew, Mishkan, is just an expression meaning dwelling place. The pattern Moses was to follow to build the wilderness tabernacle was God's spiritual tabernacle, his throne room, his dwelling place all right, in heaven. Moses' vision of the spiritual tabernacle was to be transformed into a working model, a copy. But it was to be developed, of course, in the physical realm. Now, is all this just nice-sounding allegory or theory on my part, or is there more evidence that indeed it is the heavenly pattern that God is telling Moses to build the earthly, physical, wilderness tabernacle after? Well... Let's listen to Hebrews 8.5. Here's what it says. But what they are serving is only a copy and a shadow of the heavenly original. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, God warned him, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. 
Hebrews 8 and 9 spend some time making comparisons between the heavenly and the earthly. Using the tabernacle and the sacrificial system to make its point. You know, but these same chapters also point out a principle that can get rather easily flip-flopped or just kind of bypassed in our minds, and it is this. The physical is, by nature, inferior to the spiritual. That is, whatever exists in the spirit world is far superior in its capabilities and, and in its purity than what is possible in the physical world. For instance, the tabernacle and all of its services, while very real and God-ordained, are only copies, inferior copies, of the real, original, heavenly tabernacle, which, of course, existed before and then simultaneously with this earthly tabernacle that's about to be built. See, the Bible will use the term shadows to compare the earthly to the heavenly, as in it was a shadow of things to come. When describing many of the elements of the tabernacle or, or talking about prophecies or even the law itself, it's referring to the fact that compared to the spiritual original, the physical copy simply can't match up. It can't provide the depth of reality that the real thing can. You know, I think Leonardo da Vinci may be the greatest painter ever. And Leonardo da Vinci can paint, if he sought to, a breathtaking picture of Mount Everest, perhaps as no other ever could. But it could never compare with the real Mount Everest. That painting would still always be but a shadow of the real thing. You see, the physical world is very limiting because it's governed by the laws of physics and it's contained within a universe of space and time. The spiritual operates outside of those limitations and laws. So every element of the tabernacle, its rooms, its materials, its design, its furniture, the sacrificial system, everything was patterned after the heavenly original. And it all looked forward towards the time when, through Messiah, mankind would be able to experience the limitless spiritual reality of its meaning instead of the severely limited physical copies that were about to be produced. Now, let's look at some of the awesome connections and symbolisms of a general nature about the tabernacle. First, notice how it was laid out in the same way that the geographical area of Mount Sinai was laid out. That is, the mountain and the tabernacle were, were divided into three zones of varying degrees of holiness. Now, the mountain, Mount Sinai, was holy, all of it. There was this stone fence, a boundary marker, down at the base of the mountain that separated the holy mountain from the valley floor below. The holy area, if you would, from the area the people could congregate. The entirety of Mount Sinai equates to the tabernacle's sanctuary, the tent. And the sanctuary consisted of two connected rooms inside of that tent the holy place, and the holy of holies. Now, the summit of Mount Sinai was where the Spirit of God rested. Up there in the cloud that 
we're told, burned like a raging fire. And only one person was allowed to come up into that area, and only when summoned by Yehovah, and that person was Moses. The summit, you see, is the equivalent to the Holy of Holies, whereby only the high priest could enter, no one else, and then only one day a year, a, a specific day, ordained by God. And what's that day? That's right, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, the mountain slope was equivalent to the holy place in the tent sanctuary. The slope of Mount Sinai was where God called Moses and and the 70 elders. Remember now, these 70 elders were the people's representatives, plus Aaron and his two sons, and they were all to come and have the covenant feast, the covenant meal before the Lord. They had to come over that barrier line, that, that, that rock fence that separated the holy from everything else. That stone fence, which up to now the people could not cross, this group of 74 men now could. But because of the sacrifice on the altar, which sealed that covenant, and the blood of that sacrificed animal, which was sprinkled on the people, and therefore they were ceremonially atoned for and covered, their sin was covered, God now could allow these 74 people who represented all Israel, again, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu and the 70 elders, these could come up to the holy mountain. However, not to the summit. Not up to the holy of holies. Only to the mountain slope. The holy place. A zone of slightly less holiness than the summit. Okay. The valley floor side of the rock fence barrier was where the Hebrew people could congregate. It was the zone of humanity but only for the set-apart people, only for people who are redeemed. No others were allowed to be in that zone of humanity. It's also where God instructed Moses to build a stone altar on which the sacrifices to seal that Mosaic covenant were to be made. This valley floor area now was the equivalent to the outer court of the tabernacle where the sacrifice official bronze altar was to be built and where the redeemed people of God could come to offer their, their burnt offerings, their sacrifices to God. So we see this sameness, if you would, this sameness of pattern in every place that God dwells. His earthly tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle, was the model for every... Uh, let me say that different. I'm, I misspoke. His heavenly tabernacle was the model for every one of his earthly dwelling places, starting with the Garden of Eden, then Mount Sinai, then the Wilderness Tabernacle, and then eventually the Wilderness Tabernacle's replacement, the Temple. Now, let me go off on a bit of a tangent now to show you another fascinating connection. 400 years earlier, Yehovah had brought the infant tribe of Israel from Canaan down into Egypt in order for them to, to survive a famine. Israel went on to live and multiply greatly into a huge nation there in the desert sands of Egypt. 
And when Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, was the governor of Egypt, and then Jacob moved his entire clan to Egypt at Joseph's invitation in order to begin anew, do you recall how many people made up the entire clan of Israel? Well, counting Joseph and his family, 74. The exact same number of Israelites that God called to come up to his holy mountain to consecrate, to consecrate yet another new beginning for Israel, this time as a full-fledged, set-apart nation for him. Now, be aware, there were definitely more than 74 Israelites that journeyed from Canaan down into Egypt. Exactly how many came, we're not, we, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that sometime before Israel moved to Egypt, there was at least one instance in which a very sizable number of people were added to Jacob's nation when at Shechem, Jacob's sons led that red rate of revenge on the city's inhabitants. Remember, this was in revenge for the king of Shechem's son raping their sister Dinah. Right? And these sons of Jacob killed all the males inside of Shechem and then took all the women and children as their slaves. Now, since this was just standard operating procedure for all Middle Eastern cultures of that day, it is likely that other similar incidents occurred, perhaps not on quite as grand a scale, in, in which Israel captured individuals in order to increase the size of the fledging, fledgling Israelite nation. The 74 Israelites spoken of as coming down to Egypt represented the entire nation that entered Egypt, just as the 74 Israelites that God called to come up to his mountain represented the entire nation that left Egypt. Well, next, Moses erected 12 standing stones, 12 monuments at the base of Mount Sinai in order to represent the 12 tribes of Israel before God. Accordingly, God instructed that there be a table inside the tabernacle with 12 loaves of showbread on it at all times, representing the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel before him inside the tabernacle. Now, inside these two separate rooms of the tent sanctuary, called the Holy Place and then the Holy of Holies, all the fixtures were to be made of gold, which, of course, gold symbolizes in the Bible holiness and purity. Outside of the sanctuary, in the outer court, in that area of humanity, all the fixtures were to be made of bronze and less valuable metals. Now, let me mention one more thing. The tabernacle contained no images of Jehovah. The religion of Jehovah was to be an imageless religion. The second of the Ten Commandments makes it very clear that God wants no images of his person to be made. The religion of the Hebrews was the first, and to the best of my knowledge, along with its offshoot, Christianity, remains the only religion in which God says no images of him are to be made. And you know, we need to think long and hard about this and this penchant we have for our images and symbols. Now next week, we'll examine that very first item that God instructed to be made 
from those free will contributions, the terumah of the people. That is the Ark of the Covenant.